I remember when I was I was writing about Alien when it, the first one came out in 1979 and interviewing cast and crew and you know a lot of writing about it. And I would oftentimes find myself wondering about word choices. Should I refer to it as if it were a sci-fi film or a horror film or both? But yeah, it is both. And those genres are so close together that you know they're intertwined that way. I mean, think about the most that notorious chest burst sequence in, in Alien. You know, that's something out of a horror film, right? But of course, it's very much in a film that push come to shove, I would call science fiction. And yet you get a sequence like that, and that's horror movie material. Why can't that be in a sci-fi film? Why not? I mean, sure, it, it works there. So in many ways, as academics, we worry over that. We fret over it more than we should, I think, and just simply acknowledge the fact that there are some genres that are close together. And I think in this film, it's fundamentally a, one of the superhero movies, but it does have some, some horror elements in it. And I guess those are, I'm not guessing, I, I, I'm confident actually that those are you know, Sam Raimi-generated things. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. Today, we're going to talk about Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and the Stephen King Firestarter remake, starting with Doctor Strange. Now, Mike, we've talked many times about, you know, the Marvel Universe and the endlessness of it all. And one thing about this movie that I think sort of damages it a little bit is it was supposed to come out before the spider-man movie which came out before it because because of covid you know they came out out of order and if you kind of track all the threads of the stories i thought it did make it seem sort of i don't know it was just a, a miss in several kinds of storytelling ways but mike where to jump in with the strangeness of dr strange let's start off by talking about the multiverse itself and talking with friends and with students and so on, I see that, you know, this has become such a buzzword and really just within the last year or so, you know, where everyone out used to be, and you know what it reminds me of? Years ago, you know, recording artists would, would release an album, right? And of course, albums are already old fashioned sounding, but, you know, you'd release an album or CD and now it drops, right? Well, when does it drop? You know, and, and so so hip and so trendy. Now everything's dropping, right? When when does the movie drop? And so that that's a word that very quickly became a buzzword, what I call an obligatory buzzword. The multiverse is something similar now. Uh, when I have students writing essays about films like this, you know, we have to use that word now. It's just out there. And so what I found interesting was I thought, geez, you know, a few years ago, you know, how many people would have used that word? And now we're all using it. We're all hipsters that way. And so what I appreciated was, uh, I think it was, in, it was in the New Yorker, actually, the film critic there was curious and did some research into like the history of the word and was able to document it as far back as, and this is caught me by surprise, the American poet Alan Tate using this word multiverse in 1923. And I thought, what, where, where was I then, you know? And he was writing actually about the poet John Keats or something. I thought, well, how did that word get into the language? So I still have to do some further sleuthing on it, but, but that the word itself actually has been a word in use at least as far back as, as that. But, you know, one thing, and this is, I know I can be very cynical sometimes in talking about the Marvel Universe, because now that these movies are so cross-referenced, both within a film and between films, uh, you could call it like one franchise visiting another, uh, there's a social component to it, right? And that's fine. I mean, I mean, you know, people love the material, why, why not? The more the merrier. But where I become a little cynical is the fact that as soon as you start introducing the concept of a multiverse, of having these various universes or, or planes of existence uh, visiting each other that way. To me, it's just a further invitation 
as if a further invitation were needed for the special effects crew to really go overboard. And one of the things that I actually I found disappointing about Dr. Strange was I think it sort of gets lost in those multiverses. I, I think there's just there's a little bit of everything going on. And, and by the time you even have like, like a giant octopus, uh, you know, attacking, you know, the city skyscrapers, well, why not? You know, it's almost like the people in special effects, well, let's do an octopus next. And, and it just comes in. And a lot of the reviews have, have shared my take on it, which, which is a mixed to negative one that on the one hand, there's a lot going on here. And ironically, on the other hand, maybe not quite enough. It just seems like it's busy to be busy and it's jumping here and there. And I was just left feeling unsatisfied by it. How about you? Well, I'm with you with the one-eyed octopus, just that it was so, I don't know. I feel like I've seen the one-eyed octopus before, you know, eating New York <laughs> and picking up the cars. And, you know, of course you realize they're going to have to try to damage the eye. You know exactly where it's going, which kind of kills some of the suspense. You're just waiting for the moment that you know is coming. But in terms of the multiverse, I will say for this movie that the one thing I thought saved it was this one scene where they are tumbling through many multiverses. I think there's 30 different ones. And they're all different iterations of the characters who are going through them. And in one of the multiverses, everyone's made out of paint. And then they tumble into something else. So many really creative ways to take your existence and then almost like a fractal where, you know, it could be this, it could be that in these alternate universes. I thought that was really interesting. That was the best part of the movie and all special effects, of course. Well, Marie, you know, it, it's on the one hand, it is creative. Uh, on the other hand, it's so arbitrary sometimes. It just seems, you know, like, and I, this is like a soapbox position of mine. And, and, you know, and I love a lot of science fiction, but sometimes where I balk a little bit is in terms of what I call internal or story logic where oftentimes I feel like, and I'm being overly dogmatic, I realize, but I don't feel like you can have a really outrageous premise, particularly like in science fiction, but you need to develop it in a logical way. Because if you don't, then if anything can happen, then nothing matters. And I realize I should have like, you know, tattoos made up to that effect or t-shirts emblazoned. But so I know I'm being like too stringent and too, too harsh in saying that, but do you see the point I'm getting at that sometimes in a film like Dr. Strange, like, oh, well, this and then that, and yeah, it's sort of a surreal head trip at times. And I can enjoy that. I mean, some of it just made me laugh. It was really clever. But, you know, when you're going like, you know, two hours or a little bit over two hours, after a while, I feel like, okay, enough already. The special effects crew just won't quit. You know, they, and I know they won't quit because at the end, we're going to have the, the, you know, the, the 10 minute end crawl. We're going to have, you know, and I'll, I'll read every name of everyone who worked on the special effects because we all want those Easter eggs that, that get planted, you know, at, at the end of a film. But Marie, let's go back and forth on this because do you, do you see my point there that sometimes it's just like, particularly in a, in a feature length film, it's like, knowing when to quit with it, knowing when enough is enough. Well, we've talked several times about runtime, and I will at least be grateful it doesn't go that far over two hours. It's True. two hours and six minutes. True. But I definitely think they could have cut six minutes. <laughs> no, I know what you're saying. It, uh, and actually, even more than that, it's a, why, a film, if it's going to work, doesn't have to be two full hours. Right. You, you could write. I mean, uh, you know, I've seen some very long films and love them. But, you know, if you have a story that works, you know, 90 minutes, 100 minutes, up to, two, you know, but nowadays, you're absolutely right. It has the virtue of being just 126 minutes. Yes. Uh, so many of its brethren, if you will, go, the, the new mark seems to be two hours, 20 minutes, doesn't it? Give mm -hmm. or take. And, and sometimes it's just like, and maybe 10 minutes of that is the end, end credits, I realize, but it seems to me that's a bad trend because you can kind of wear out your welcome. And even when I, speaking of, you know, coming out of a theater and eavesdropping on the audience response, 
I remember on one of these superhero movies, there was a couple coming out of the theater and the woman said to the man, she said, you know, she said, I really like that. She said, but it just went on too long. And when you start to hear comments like that, that's coming from the fan base. If I say that, people say, well, you're a grouchy moviegoer. But but when the fan base has somebody saying, you know, it just went on a little too long. That's back to your point, Marie, that the editing could be tighter. You know, you, you could really be a little more stringent with shaping the material as opposed to, hey, why not an octopus? <laughs> you know, why not? Throw it in there. Why not? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I, I had heard an axiom, which I kept in mind in terms of teaching, but I think it's actually meant for lecturers, but it certainly applies to movies. You should never talk for longer than people can wait to go to the bathroom, which it turns out is about two hours. So anything that goes over two hours, you are really pressuring your audience to hang with you. And because you have to wait till the bitter end, like you mentioned, listening, you know, the whole list of, you know, the second cruise and, and all of the, you know, the caterers and everything, just to get to that Easter egg at the end, you know, you're wearing out your welcome. I think it would be, it would behoove them to edit things down to a reasonable, we could have done it with six minutes less one-eyed octopus and it would have still been fine. You know what's funny here is, I mean, you know what special effects, once they start to thank the crew there, that's just going to go on and yes. on, right? And I read it like as an exercise in ethnographic studies, like, like oh my God, you know, the, here's a company based in India, right? And here, here's a company, you know, because they have all these companies around the world that are contributing. So I'm, I'm looking at all the surnames that way. But what gets me, and this is not just for superhero movies, is, and this could be a whole subject for a discussion we would have one day, I guess we're having it now in a, in a way, just the fact that, you know, when did end credits become so lengthy? Like I saw a movie the other day, which was not a superhero movie, and it had the usual credits at the end. And then I start reading credits for, well, nowadays, you know, you're going to read like for, for COVID workers and this and that. And I can expect that, and that's fine. But they had a credit, which I've seen before for Honey Wagon Driver. And whenever I see that one, I laugh out loud, like, I, okay, I know you need a spot a pot, you know, when you're shooting on location and, and you know, and, and I wouldn't want to deny you that <laughs> that's an important thing to have on location. And that person should be well-paid and, and thanked and all. But when you start reading that in the credits, you think, oh my God, at least it didn't say like assistant driver for that as well. But Marie, what's your take on that? Because I feel like it's really gone so overboard there that like every last person who, who drove by the set <laughs> somehow gets thanked in the credits. What do you think? I'm just grateful they don't like list every insurance company that was involved for all of this because we really would be sitting there for another hour. And actually, I always take note, you know, whenever I'm watching a movie and then I'm, I'm going to wait till the very end of the credits for the Easter egg, I time how long the credits are. In some of these movies, it's like eight minutes worth oh, sure. of credits. Sure. It's sure. just, it's, it's amazing because, you know, back in the day, they opened with most of the credits and then you watch the movie and it was then the end and you got up and left the, the theater. Yeah, but you know what? When they opened with the credits, it was really just a, a quick minute or two, mm -hmm. just the principal credits into the movie at the end, whether it said the end or not. Uh, you know, within a minute or two, you're out of there. You, know, you might have some credits at the end, but not many. Well not the honey wagon guy. No, no. I mean, well into the 60s and 70s and 80s, you would be relatively tight with those end credits. One reason why I stick around to the bitter end, in a superhero movie, you have to, let's face it. You don't want to feel like you're the, like, like, I don't want to feel like I'm the dummy who walked out just before the reveal at the end. Or the, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? I, I, I'm there to the last frame of it, believe me. But one reason I stick around for almost any film is that I'm curious about locations, sometimes in terms of, gee, where'd they shoot this? 
and which I know you can get that information elsewhere, but where this should, and also like music credits, things like that. Like you've had all these things going in your ear. It's like, I, I kind of recognize that song. And then you read the end credits. Oh yeah, right. That's so-and-so. I mean, there are reasons like that to stick around, but in films, even like Dr. Strange, which is not, you know, overly long, those credits at the end do tend to just drag out there. So back to your point, Marie, like tighter editing would extend to tighter editing, I would think in the end credits even, you know, we don't need all of that, do we? You know, it's interesting that the musical credits always come at the very, very end, just in terms of convention. And am I correct, Mike, in that the time that it switched from the credits being at the beginning with Star Wars, because they wanted to open with, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and then they pushed all of the credits to the end, and then everybody started doing that. You know, you're absolutely right. That's that's the time period when that starts to happen. We, we can't, like, put it to a, just a particular year or, you know, because, you know, you know, if you watch films from like late 70s, early 80s, you're going to see a bit of a mix, right? But you're right, Marie, that once it happened, that film probably more than any other. And then from that point onward, and not just science fiction, films in general. So you're, you're right about that. And Doctor Strange, how did you feel about the dynamics of, and I don't think there's a very involving story here. I think it's very busy, but, but I found like it was, it was what I call bouncing around. And I never felt fully invested in the characters and their relationships. That's on a really primal level. I mean, I was tracking it well enough, but I never really cared much here. It was just, it was just keep, it was like keeping a scorecard of people visiting from another multiverse or, or what should have been like a romantic relationship or some relationship, but, but somehow it just gets bounced around. What do you think of that? I agree. Now, I love Benedict Cumberbatch, and I, I think he makes a nice Doctor Strange and all of that stuff. They introduce a younger character, which I thought, okay, they're trying to appeal to a, a younger demographic, and, and she's fine, and the character's fine, and it makes for an interesting side story. But you're right, it does sort of, it dilutes the Doctor Strange character, because he's no longer really the star, he's a co-star. Now, between that, Mike, and the other thing I wanted to mention, which is most of the Marvel movies are released as action, comedy, drama, and sci-fi and fantasy. But this was the one, the only one they've released under horror. How did you think it stacked up as a horror movie? Thank you for asking that, because I do want to talk about that. A reminder that the director is Sam Raimi. He has his credentials with superheroes. There's the Spider-Man trilogy and so on. But we first got to know him, and you and I can relate to this, going back to the 1980s when he was best known for horror movies, The Evil Dead, you know, that series. And he has sent, you know, push come to shove, he has a horror movie sensibility. You know, if you, if you want zombies, if you want witches, if you want all these strange supernatural things, he was like a go-to guy. And I think that's a mixed blessing in this particular film. Because one reason why it's overloaded is it does tend to throw like variations on all the above our way. And I just think it's almost like too much of that. And, you know, again, when we, we keep talking about that octopus, but that's something out of a horror movie, right? We've all seen that kind of schlocky horror movie where the octopus attacks New York for reasons known only to the octopus and God, I guess. And then so much that it can be, it can be you know, like in an eye candy way, it can be entertaining, but it's also really predictable, isn't it? You know, it's monster attacks Gotham kind of thing. And I just think Sam Raimi sometimes just gets a bit carried away with all that because it, it is fun and he's just having more fun with it. So don't you think that it's his involvement in the project that would prompt the people marketing the film to really push it in terms of horror? Because you're right. I mean, it's a superhero movie and yet it has some horror trappings in it. That's a good way of putting it, trappings, because I didn't really feel like it was destined for a horror movie kind of ending. Even the one-eyed octopus thing is more of a sci-fi 
thing than than something that's actual horror, you know, like Stephen King level horror. Well, you know, the thing is, when we talk about genres in our classes at, at HCC, I oftentimes talk about genres that I call next door neighbors. You can see how the gangster film kind of morphs into film noir. And you can talk about films that, that, you know, really are a bit of both. And you can spend hours with that, just realizing that there are, there are elements within each of those genres. And I won't even get into the argument whether film noir is a genre or a style, because once you get into that argument, you never get out of it, right? But you can think of films like Maltese Falcon from 1941. It's a gangster movie, but it's got film noir elements. It's a transitional film, let's call it that way. Two other genres that are closely aligned would be science fiction and horror. I remember when I was, I was writing about Alien, when it, the first one came out in 1979 and interviewing cast and crew and, you know, a lot of writing about it. And I would oftentimes find myself wondering about word choices. Should I refer to it as if it were a sci-fi film or a horror film or both? Well, yeah, it is both. And those genres are so close together that, you know, they're intertwined that way. I mean, think about the most, that notorious chest burst sequence in, in Alien. You know, that's something out of a horror film, right? But of course, it's very much in a film that push come to shove, I would call science fiction. And yet you get a sequence like that, and that's horror movie material. Why can't that be in a sci-fi film? Why not? I mean, sure, it, it works there. So in many ways, as academics, we worry over that. We fret over it more than we should, I think, and just simply acknowledge the fact that there are some genres that are close together. And I think in this film, it's fundamentally a, one of the superhero movies, but it does have some, some horror elements in it. And I guess those are, I'm not guessing, I, I, I'm confident, actually, that those are you know, Sam Raimi generated things. I mean, how do you feel about that? Don't you feel like, like, you know, he brings elements of horror into what's fundamentally just another superhero movie? Yes, I agree. But I would say I, I didn't feel like this was really a horror movie. I don't particularly like that genre, but I do. And even when I think about that scene from Alien, that was truly frightening and shocking and to see where I didn't really feel like there were, I was never really scared during well, Doctor well, Mar Strange. Yeah, Marie, you know why? There's a distinction to be made here. And Alien, it was a true, I mean, I saw the first screening of it, basically, and so we had no idea that was going to happen in Alien. Just, I, I was in a New York theater, it was a preview screening, the audience screamed, we were all just, just besides ours, it was shocked, we had no idea that chest burst was going to occur. You see it later, or see it now, and you, you either know about it or kind of anticipate it, but to see it fresh like that, it, it's a jolting memory, okay? So that's horror that's meant to scare you. But Sam Raimi oftentimes has a sort of postmodernist sensibility. He makes horror movies that are almost like Joe Dante kind of thing, like horror movies, but they're comic as much as anything. So that's a dis an important distinction that, that he's not making horror movies to like really scare you. He's making horror movies to entertain you and, and to make you laugh oftentimes. When he introduces that, 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 that poor octopus, which we're going to beat to death soon as a conversational topic, when he introduces that octopus, he knows that you're not going to be scared by it. He knows you're going to laugh at it. It's cartoonish. So this is horror in the sense of what I call live action cartoon horror. This is where the monster, you know, comes out and basically says, I'm a monster. And you and the audience just kind of laugh along. And, and don't you think that, that that's how it's being used here? There's nothing really truly scary in this movie, but it's not really meant to be frightening. You know, I think you've hit on something by describing it as a Saturday morning cartoon, because that fits with the monsters, with the younger character being, you know, one of the leads. I think that is, might actually have been a, a genius move in terms of maybe reaching a particular audience. I will say, by the way, about Alien, that when I saw that in the theater, I had my purse in my hand. And when the monster bursts out of the chest, I was waving it in the air and screaming. 
<laughs> Wait, what am I doing? Uh, <laughs> Marie, it was only a movie. <laughs> it's just a movie. It's just, just a movie. But let's pivot over to the other horror film on our docket, which is Firestarter, based on a Stephen King novel, which was made in 1984 with uh, Drew Barrymore in the lead role. I want to start off with why remake that movie, which wasn't all that good in 1984. Thank you for saying that. I remember going to see Firestarter in 1984. It's, it's Drew Barrymore and David Keith. It was a mediocre film. I, I mean, it was nothing special, really. And, you know, it was more or less forgotten after that. Nowadays, the remaking process is so relentless that even films that weren't particularly notable back in the day, decades later, are, are being remade. And, and I thought it was truly unfortunate in that sense. I w were you looking for a remake of Firestarter? I don't recall waking up one morning saying, gee, I wish they would remake Firestarter. <laughs> I had other things on my agenda, if you will. So that said, it comes in with some, some what I call negative baggage and that the first film wasn't that great. And the second one is, is not even as, as good as that mediocre film was. So essentially a negative, and in fact, you know, as critics, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about the film at the point where it's already opened and it has not gone over particularly well critically or commercially. So let's dissect that. What are some of the reasons you would cite for this? The fact that you and I are not the only two critics who were less than enthused by it and, and audiences haven't exactly gone wild either. Well, you've given me an opening by saying dissect. And one of my major problems with this is I actually like Stephen King. I'm not a, a horror movie buff and I don't like to read horror, but I think Stephen King is very good at creating characters both male and female, kind of getting to, you know, the crux of why people do the things that they do. And some of his things that he has written have turned into wonderful movies. Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, Christine even was not a bad adaptation of one of his books. So there's nothing wrong with his book, Firestarter, if you like the genre. But they changed so many things about it. I mean, why buy a Stephen King property? And then change the ending and add all kinds of I thought bizarre touches where while you're while you're watching it you're thinking why are they dissecting a frog in elementary school it was just so far-fetched and ridiculous and then the scene where oh let's play dodgeball because you know what could possibly go wrong you know with a child who can start fires if she becomes upset and some of these choices were just such clunkers for me while watching it I was thinking I just don't understand that decision to change what was perfectly good story. Why not just shoot, you know, what he wrote? Why add all of the stuff that made absolutely no sense? In terms of the story as we have it here, there are two parents. And when they were in college, they were subjected to government uh, experiments. We'll, we'll put it that way. And, and as a result of those experimental procedures, they have telekinetic powers which they have passed on with a vengeance to their now 11-year-old daughter. She is the fire starter. And so the parents are constantly moving because, you know, the, the poor girl, I mean, she's already being bullied at school. And so when she reacts or acts out, you know, things, including people, catch on fire. So it's no laughing matter that way. They're always on the move that way. I was kind of amused by the casting in it because the father of this girl is played by Zac Efron. And I had met Zac Efron when he was just starting out in his career. And he was such a teen idol. I remember wondering, you know, will he become an adult actor, you know, fully adult actor? You always sort of wonder that way with, with teen idols when, when they get into adulthood. What he does in this film, he's done it elsewhere too, is he's spent a lot of time at the gym. 
He's really bulked up. So, you know, there's that. And secondly, he's grown a lot of facial hair. And that's what, the, what that's sometimes what an actor will do. If an actor is mainly known for good looks, the actor almost deliberately will say, well, I'm going to wear a beard in this movie. So, you know, he actually in the film is okay, but you know what? No one is more than okay here. By that, I mean, the characters are not very well developed, either Zac Efron or Cindy Lemon, who plays um, the mother, the parental figures and the child actor and so on they're okay. It, it's just, you know, they sort of go through the mechanics of the story, but I never felt fully invested in them as characters. I never cared that much about them. So, you know, ultimately I thought, well, who's the audience for this film? And I thought, well, this film is a pyromaniac's delight. I, I mean, it, you know, it, it, for anyone who, who enjoys, you know, fire that way, uh, you know, th this poor child who's just, you know, cursed with these uh, supernatural powers, if she gets angry, whether she wants to or not, when she gets angry, something's going to explode or catch on fire somehow. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting as an effect, but this is like at feature length. And after a while, I don't care about the characters particularly. And it's just, okay, here's another variation on somebody crossed their path. And now this person's going to go up in flames. I mean, did you feel that way at all? That sometimes like scene after scene is like, okay, I know where this is headed. Well, you know, what they had in 2022 that they did not have in 1984 is the depth of CGI. You know, at least in 1984, all the pyrotechnics were like literally things they had to stage rather than, you know, put them together in, in post-production. I think the major flaw in this movie for anybody wanting to watch it is that in the 1984 version, Drew Barrymore is likable. This character, this girl in this movie is not likable. And they have her, you know, explode a cat and a bird and, you know, that's rule number one for likable characters. You don't kick the puppy. So <laughs> it was uh, really disturbing and it made the whole movie unlikable, not just that one character. And then they give you Kurtwood Smith in one scene and then you never see him again. So again, it's like, what a waste of audience goodwill. Yeah, the characters were not sympathetic. And even though, you know, you should feel sorry for you know, the, this family, the, you know, the supernatural powers they didn't ask for. We really don't know enough about them. We don't care enough about them. And you're absolutely right, Marie, in terms of some of the things that catch on fire and so on, whatever measure of sympathy one had, doesn't it just disappear at that point? It's just like, you know, I, I, this is really awful what they're doing. You know, I know I'm supposed to care about them, but they're doing some awful things. Yes, I kept thinking of the little girl playing, you know, the lead as, you know, evil Matilda. You keep watching to see what they're going to do with the pyrotechnics, but you're really not following the plot. I will say, though, surprisingly, the John Carpenter music in the background was the best part. Too bad they didn't get him to direct it. Well, they actually went through several directors. They, they, there were two previous directors who left the project. And then, you know, it gives you a sense of how maybe there was some development squabbling, if you will. But you're absolutely right. The Carpenter score, actually, that music is really effective. Even when the scenes otherwise aren't, the music is, has a lot of musical hooks, doesn't it? I mean, the music works really well. Yeah, it also, you know, evoked Carrie without giving you any of the Carrie payoff, you know, the, the bullied child and, you know, one day, you know, she's going to fight back. It kind of goaded you into wanting her to do more destruction to the people who were bullying her. And then you're sitting there thinking, wait, no, these are children. I don't really want her to set them on fire, but they sort of <laughs> set you up to like, well, what is she going to do? What do I want her to do? What would I do if I was her? What would I be tempted to do? And then they don't, there's no payoff for what they're kind of building you up to expect. Yeah, it's really very disappointing that way. You want to identify with characters, want to care about them. And yet I oftentimes find myself saying, no, no, no. I mean, you know, 
I know that these children have bullied you, but please don't set them on fire. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really mean-spirited oftentimes, this film, isn't it? I mean, it really it is. is. It's got an ugly edge to it. It does. And thank you for saying that. That actually, I think, is its fatal flaw. It's a mean-spirited little movie. And the funny thing is, is that the book is so much better. It's a terrible thing to do to Stephen King. Again, if you're going to purchase the rights to do a Stephen King story, at least follow what he wrote. And nobody needed to remake this movie, which only means there's going to be another like Firestarter, the sequel, right? Oh, no, don't even say <laughs> it. <laughs> don't even think it. <laughs> you know, it's true. All right. Any final words about Firestarter? No, but just simply the fact that nowadays when things are being remade like this, all joking aside, there's a tendency sometimes just to hit that button where they say, okay, well, let's do a sequel or a prequel, whatever. And, and uh, you know, the audience interest isn't there in this case. So I'm hoping in this case, at least we won't see another one. So let, let's actually count our blessings there that, you know, this film did not do well critically or commercially. Let's hope it'll be another 30 or 40 years before somebody decides to remake it. If you uh, saw the Drew Barrymore movie and were thinking, oh, maybe I'll give this a shot. Instead, you know, go to YouTube and look up Drew Barrymore on Saturday Night Live, where she does a spoof of her own movie where that has to do with those fire starter, you know, things that you can purchase to get your uh, your fireplace going. Much funnier, much more worthwhile. But that does bring us to the end of our episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts on dragondigitalradio.podbean.com or on Spotify and Pandora under Dragon Digital Radio. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.